0: Hey everyone, you are listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature and poetry can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Jen Frey, and I'm on Instagram at Professor Frey. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at EudaimoniaPod. In this episode, titled Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim, I speak with National Book Award winner Philip Kly about narrative identity, absurdity, and the difficulties we humans face in our search for the truth. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back to episode 21 of Sacred and Profane Love. So I'm really pleased to be joined by Phil Kly this evening. Phil is a graduate of Dartmouth College and a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps. He served in Iraq's Anbar Province from January 2007 to February 2008 as a public affairs officer. After being discharged, he received an MFA from Hunter College of the City University of New York. He has a best-selling short story collection titled Redeployment which won the National Book Award for Fiction in 2014. His writings have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, and the Brookings Institution's Brookings Essay Series. Welcome to the podcast, Phil.
1: It is wonderful to be on.
0: So I Twitter know you.
1: The nice things about Twitter is that it does introduce you to, uh, to cool people sometimes.
0: Well, why don't you tell my listeners about your podcast? Sure.
1: Um... Uh, I do it with a, an old buddy of mine, Jacob Siegel, uh, who's an editor at Tablet, a uh, really good journalist and, and writer. He's got a, a few fiction uh, short stories out there, <clears throat> which are worth hunting down as well. And we usually we pair a manifesto and a work of art um, and talk about them both in tandem. Uh, and so it's you know we'll do, it's manifesto loosely defined, so it'll be everything from sort of Valerie Solanas's scum manifesto, the society for the cutting up of men, which we paired with cat person, Christian Repentian short story, cat person.
0: That was a good episode. Thank I you. That thank you. I'm a fan of your podcast. Thank you.
1: Uh, uh, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, you know, to, uh, we did a couple of, uh, Schiller's aesthetic letters and in McEwen, we did, um, um, Alistair McIntyre on patriotism. Uh,
0: with, Ooh, is that a new one? I don't think I've. No, it's that an
1: old one. And the, the oh, work okay. of art was we considered the the, the ceremonial interment of the unknown soldier uh, in 1921 as work of art in its own right, um, and talked about those two in tandem. So it's it's a sort of it's a, it's, a, it's an odd project that Jake and I have going that I think is you know we did it so that we would have the kind of conversations that we like having. Um, that were sort of fitting with the sorts of things we were writing about that would kind of feed our work and also just in, enable us to talk about, you know, ideas and art that we loved. So, or, or ideas and, and art that we hated, uh, you know, we don't, we don't like everything that we, um, we look at, but we're.
0: That's right. That's right. I really, I liked your, um, you guys had an episode on the first things manifesto, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I liked that one.
1: first things has been um <clears throat> really they're all really mad at me now, but
0: me. yeah no it's i'm I'm not happy with no. them this week, so you're a podcaster and uh but you're also I mean you're primarily a writer I mean is that how you want to primarily describe I'm yourself primarily a dad at this point um, <laughs>
1: yeah. I, feel, I feel uh I, I don't know if I can claim that because I know that you've got six at home, uh, so two and one on the way is not that impressive. But um, <laughs> I'm
0: I don't gonna... know it's the it's the plague. I feel like parenting <laughs> just in general right now is is impressive. No matter who's ju- so when are when are y'all due? Um, uh,
1: in about a month. So okay, in... so
0: you're going to have a plague baby.
1: Plague baby, yeah, that's um that's what we're gonna name him. Uh, <laughs> baby just,
0: <Yes. laughs> I'm sure he'll be thrilled. You're also in New York city, right?
1: Yep. Um, no, it's, it's very serious. Uh, friend of ours, um, you know, parent died of this, oh, um, ago. Another friend,
0: um,
1: is in the, uh, it's in the hospital on the ventilator, it, uh, their parent, uh, it's, um, yeah, no, it's terrible.
0: That's really terrible and terrifying. I'm sorry. Um, I mean, I feel, you know, I'm down here in South Carolina. And so if I mean, obviously we, we have it here. I think we're now up to like 900 cases or something, but it's nothing like New York City. There are fewer people in my state in general been in new york city i think they're like no one lives here which which i actually like generally but i'm especially grateful for now and don't you sorry don't you also have a novel that's like coming out oh yeah just I, came should, out? I should talk about that no, uh originally. yeah talk about your novel uh yeah it comes out
1: in um october you know assuming the world still exists and right. um yeah um it's mostly set in Colombia, though it also takes place in Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, Yemen, and America.
0: Um, um, which Colombia? Sorry, I live in Columbia, South Carolina, nah. and I'm certain it doesn't take place there.
1: No, uh, Colombia, <laughs> the country. <Yeah>.
0: Right, gotcha.
1: <laughs> And it kind of tracks the way that sort of um, American wars have cross-pollinated. So, if you so for. Example, Easy example, every American ambassador to Colombia post 9 11 has ended up involved in Afghanistan or Pakistan in some way. Okay. Um, two American ambassadors, they're posting after being the ambassador to Colombia, was ambassador to Afghanistan. Uh, and then, sort of, military tactics and strategies that we've used or sort of developed in Iraq and Afghanistan have been brought to bear in the conflict in Colombia. And it sort of follows two Americans two Colombians, um, uh, civilians and soldiers, uh, whose sort of fates intersect, uh, in this one province. Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, took me six years to write.
0: Wow. When did you start writing fiction?
1: Oh, I mean, I always, I was always a big reader, which is, I suppose, how the, how's the, how the disease starts. And then I found that like the way that I put, could put myself at the most risk Right. And the things that I thought about the world at the most risk. Um, whereas the most exposed was by writing fiction. Right. Uh I remember writing a story. We're supposed to do a satire in, in um my junior year of high school. I went to a, a Catholic high school called Regis. Um that
0: Right. Uh, you went to this magical high school. I've you, heard about it.
1: You know who went there? Fauci
0: you know what I just I did I did know that I saw that and I was like of course they went there it's like that's
1: yeah. right yeah it, it was a magical place
0: yeah um,
1: and uh I had written this satire it was like satire dating or whatever modern dating among teenagers um uh and that was pretty sort of in a veiled way savagely self-critical and also incredibly profane. And so the teachers all had these, like the teachers uh, had their desks in a big room that the students also sort of congregated in. And so I turned the thing in like a week early because I said, oh, I, I want you to look this over. It's kind of, you know, profane.
0: This is like a like a short story. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, it's a short story. And you know- when It's you-
0: profane how? Like it has a lot of F-bombs, a lot of sex, like what? All the above, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah.
1: And, um, and I was like, uh, you know, if you could read this, if, if you don't think it's appropriate to turn in, you know, it's was due next week, I'll, I'll write a different thing. And then, you know, I go to the back of the room where my friends are hanging out, but the whole time I'm just, you know, sort of freaking out looking at my teacher as he's reading this thing. And he starts laughing as he's reading it. Um, and then, you know, when he finishes, he calls me over he's like, this is great. Um. Is this heart. like
0: a lay person, a priest? A lay a Catholic person, yeah. High school?
1: yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> it was one of the more satisfying. It was just one of those moments uh, that was tremendously satisfying. Um,
0: did you study fiction at I did, Dartmouth?
1: Yeah. I studied with the poet Tom Slay, actually, uh, and the poet Cynthia Huntington as well, and a couple other Barbara Dimmick. Um, the Tom Slay, I'm still in touch with Tom. A uh, wonderful, wonderful, really interesting poet. Actually, a poet who spent time in, in Iraq and actually in a lot of conflict uh, conflict zones and written really well about some of the complications in, in telling stories in, in war zones. Um, so, yeah, that was tremendously important. And then, you know, went into the Marine Corps.
0: So you were a fiction nerd and then yep. you went into the Marine Corps yep. because somehow, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm basically ignorant of your life story, but somehow like my assumption was You went to the Marines and then you just, then you got into fiction. And then that
1: made you a a writer, you know?
0: Uh, Yeah, right? Like you're confronted with, you know, death and the absurd and (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) You went to a super fancy high school in Manhattan and then you went to Dartmouth. So what are you doing joining the Marines? It's not like an obvious trajectory.
1: I was raised to believe in service. Uh Uh-huh. And that was something- So you
0: thought it was noble?
1: At the, yeah, and that was something the Jesuits, you know, regis, a sort of unofficial motto is "men for others." I went to. I was a freshman in college in two thousand one, graduated in two thousand five. So when I made the decision to join the Marine Corps, we were already in Afghanistan and heading into Iraq.
0: Did you think it was a just cause?
1: Uh, no. Um, in retrospect, at the time, I did.
0: No. Yeah, at the time. Yeah,
1: at the time, I sort of bought the kind of like sort of humanitarian case for Iraq that was being made among sort of center left, um, circles. Right. The justice of the war was sort of less the point to me than, you know, we were in it. We're going to, you know, whether I thought it was just or not, we were going there. We were already in Afghanistan. Um, and how well that we did in those places would be measured in human lives. So, um, you know, I wanted to serve my country. I wanted to be sort of, uh, playing a role in this massive thing that my country was doing that was you know going to shape us and as, as a country and, and, and as a world and I wanted to you know do my part
0: right did you start writing the stories that make up redeployment while you were there
1: so I started the first story it's the first story in the book is the first one that I started writing um and I wrote it uh, a couple months after I came, or started A couple months after I came back from Iraq, and the first sentence in the book, which is "We shot dogs," is the first sentence that I wrote.
0: What's your favorite contribution to that collection? Like, what's the one you recommend above all that people read?
1: Well, uh, which one is your? F- which one of your children is your favorite?
0: Um, I'm not <laughs> going to answer that publicly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, so wait, wait! You've definitely got one. <laughs> uh,
0: I am not going on record with
1: that one. (laughs) The thing is I conceived of it as a collection. I conceived of it as like, I wanted the stories to be read in order. Um, the first one was written first, but the last one was the second one, I think, uh, that I started writing. I knew where I was beginning. I knew where I wanted to end. Uh, so they don't, you know, in my mind they fit together.
0: Well, if I were. Um, minimally together, which I'm not right now, I would, of course, have read your stories in preparation for this podcast, but I haven't read them yet. I actually struggled with Lord Jim, um, which of course is what we're going to be talking about on this episode. One of the things that we're obviously going to talk about is its narrative structure. It's Mm -hmm. complicated.
1: It's complicated, not always successful narrative structure. I think it's fair to say that there's a part in the sort of late middle (laughs) where... (laughs) you can tell there's in the author's note, he actually starts defending himself against charges that the novel had gotten away from him. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. This is one of my favorite books. This is one of my favorite books, but there are flaws. (laughs) That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's not, I mean, the thing is, well, the, the Joseph Conrad that, um, most of us have read is heart of darkness Mm -hmm. and it's so, tight and there's like not a wasted breath and it's almost like poetry um so this this is a really different vibe but I think for me I've just been so distracted and I just I was like struggling to even follow the plot because it's like it jumps around in time and then you're like oh wait it's not even the same like who's narrating this thing (laughs) what's going on um but let's, let's just step back for a second. And so now I just want to ask you, why did you pick a Conrad novel? And why of all the Conrad novels did you pick Lord Jim to talk about with me?
1: I I love
0: Conrad. I do too. Why is he so great? Let's try to put that into words.
1: You think about somebody like George Eliot, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Who will describe a character in their social setting in their milieu with such intelligence and sensitivity and just utter perfection you have these characters you just feel um like you know everything about them you understand them and you understand the world and that kind of style of narration moves in kind of like the the naturalists as you're moving up towards Conrad in time with a, a bunch of writers, uh, you know, I'm thinking like McTeague uh, from Frank Norris or Stephen Crane for whom like you got like 19th century positivism and these ideas of, of sort of science as being able to pin down everything, including the human. So they're looking at, at, at um, society and they'll describe human beings in these ways that are sort of, really rich and interesting but also sometimes you feel like the human beings in their works are um sort of like you know pinned like butterflies to a board right and dissected and when you read conrad he has all of that sort of rich understanding of the ways that the sort of sociological conditions inform people and the extent to which we are really, really dependent upon culture and society and those around us and the groups that we're with and the settings that we're in. Um, and yet the characters are free. (laughs) They're human beings. There are, there, there are gaps. There are things that he's always pushing you towards. Um, where that sort of like, sort of confident, sort of positivist-inflected sort of ability to pin somebody down with utter perfection, um, where he'll just prick it and they'll pop like a like a bubble. Actually, there's a, there's a good um, there's a good example of this early on, and maybe this will give you sort of an idea of what I'm what I'm talking about. But there's a so the, the first part of the of the novel is about this guy jim um who i suppose we should say spoilers um but he's on this ship called the patna and because of a sort of a absurd sequence of events he does something shameful right though it's very clear that almost anybody and he'd always imagined himself as a kind of person who would do something heroic um and was sort of had these fantasies of of, you know when the moment came he would show his stuff
0: well yeah he's out on the scene to like have great adventures and be a hero
1: yeah he's a romantic um and then when the time comes he fails but the reason that he fails is because sort of fate has conspired so cruelly and so bizarrely that almost anybody would have and Mm -hmm. he is then there's a sort of trial uh of Mm -hmm. sorts uh with other seamen who have to uphold the sort of code of the seamen because uh the crew of the patna which it seemed like it is it, it, it had been about to sink had all fled leaving their passengers on board including jim um though he you know, his circumstances were somewhat different, different than the others. And one of the people running this tri- tr- uh, trial is this guy, Brierly, who is interrogating Jim. And, you know, it's his job to represent the code of the semen that Jim has violated and punish him, essentially. And Marlowe, the narrator, is describing Brierly. I haven't the slightest doubt he considered himself vastly my superior. He did not despise me for anything I could help, for anything I was, don't you know? I was a negligible quantity, simply because I was not the fortunate man of the earth, not Montague Briarly in command of the Osa, not the owner of an inscribed gold chronometer and of silver-mounted binoculars testifying to the excellence of my seamanship and my indomitable pluck, not possessed of an acute sense of my merit and my rewards, besides the love and worship of a black retriever, the most wonderful of its kind. For never was such a man thus loved by a dog, and I'll skip a little bit of a little bit ahead, he talks about like even despite the fact that this guy didn't think Marlowe was up to snuff, he liked him. I've never defined to myself this attraction, attraction to Briley, but there were moments when I envied him. The sting of life could do mo- no more to his complacent soul than the scratch of a pin to the smooth face of a rock. This was enviable. As I looked at him flanking on one side the unassuming pale-faced magistrate who presided at the inquiry, his self-satisfaction presented to me and to the world a surface as hard as granite. He committed suicide very soon after. You read something like that and you're, you know, you're in the world of this different style of narration where a character is just being totally described and, and, and kind of hemmed in by everything about them so you feel like you have this... Perfect understanding, And then with no warning, with this utter swerve, he destroys it. And then you sort of come to realize that what, what had happened with Brierly was encountering Jim. This is a guy who had had every success, who believed himself sort of worthy of every honor that he'd received, um, has encountered a case in which it becomes clear to him that he doesn't, I think, there's a sort of mystery to it, but you sort of assume that Briarly realizes I've never been tested like this, right? Um, and it destroys him. And I destroys Briarly. It just yeah, destroys Briarly. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that I really like about Conrad. I I, I like the way that he uses narrative, right? Is a, a just in, in incredible, I mean, the, the way that he narrates, especially the first sort of third of the book, when he's going through the Padna story, where he's going from these different narrators and you're getting these different points of view. And with the different points of view, you're getting sort of different kind of ideologically informed systems for understanding this one event, right? That it takes you about a hundred pages to get revealed exactly what happened as he's sort of moving forward in the narrative, he's kind of excavating all the attempts that human beings make at hemming the world in and making it more intelligible and less mysterious. And then they sort of always, there's always a gap. It always fails. Uh, right. and that's what I love about Conrad.
0: Right. Well, yeah. So I'm, I'm coming at, sort of literature generally from a slightly different perspective, probably less formal in the sense that like I'm a philosopher. And so part of what, I mean, part of my interest in literature is what I think it can show us um, that philosophy cannot. So Mm -hmm. it's like, um, I'm super committed to the idea that literature is like a truth seeking enterprise.
1: I once with a bunch of students had lunch with Grace Paley. And uh-huh. when she talked about revisions, she said, I don't revise to make a story better. I revise to make it more true.
0: Right. Yeah. So I, I'm, Really invested in that conception of literature, which I'm aware is controversial, but it's just one that I endorse. And um, I feel like there's a venerable tradition behind me there. I fell in love with Conrad in high school. (laughs) Of course, in high school, I was reading Heart of Darkness, which sort of blew my mind. I just don't think I had ever read anything that dark before. And I loved it. I I totally loved it. One thing to say about Conrad is English is his third language. Yeah. Um, And so I stand in awe at his command of it, he has like a really deep insight into human nature and the human condition. And in all of his novels or novellas, he's like trying to get at some, some aspect of it, you know, is sort of salient. And it strikes me in my limited capacity as reader of, of Lord Jim this time around. One of the main things that he's on about in this novel is, one, you know, that, that human beings want to know what's, what's true. Like, they, they, they want to get an account um, for themselves, for others. They want to have, like, a story about themselves and how hard and complicated it, it is, actually, to know what really happened.
1: I think he would say that wanting to know what's true and having a story about it are two different things, right?
0: I mean, un- unless we have an agenda, unless we're trying to falsify things for for some reason, right? We're we're trying to give a, f- a faithful account. But I think, and even when we try to tell the story of our own lives, and in some sense, you know, we're trying to give a, f- a faithful account. But like, it's a really fraught enterprise. It turns out. Self-knowledge is really hard. But I think one of the things yeah. about we're bound to him in
1: the name of that doubt, which is the inseparable part of our knowledge.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think self-knowledge is is part of the issue here. I have this little quote here. No man ever understands quite his own artful dodges to escape from the grim shadow of self-knowledge. Like yeah, that's one great. of the best lines in the whole book. Even further than that, in Lord Jim, there's there's a real difficulty about saying like who Jim is, even from an external perspective.
1: The way that it's told in the novel is in these, like, <laughs> it starts out in, like, a, in a third-person perspective where you, you get that kind of traditional depiction of Jim and who he had been beforehand, and then um, and then it switches to Marlowe as a narrator. Uh, and it's the first novel, I believe, that he was writing in Marlowe's voice. Uh, starts telling the story and getting accounts from other people and then having encounters with Jim and there's this Patna incident which is sort of the talk of of uh, the town but which it takes you know about a hundred pages to fully reveal what exactly happened and basically Jim who was this kind of romantic guy who joined uh, you know gone off into the seas in order to have adventure who'd always believed himself to be a you know courageous sort and was also... And Covered makes this very clear. He was the kind of guy who just by looking at him, you knew this was the kind of guy you could trust, you know, like just mm-hmm. by looking at him, he just was one of those solid dudes who you sort of felt like in a moment of crisis, I could count on him. Right.
0: Well, there's this common line, right? He's one of us. He's one of
1: us. That's the other thing. Yeah. He's one of us. What that us means sort of sometimes shifts depending on, uh, on, on where it's said. And, Jim gets on this boat, which is, (laughs) uh, captained by a loathsome fat German captain and like a drunken first mate, uh, and it's a pilgrim ship for, of pilgrims going to Mecca Mm -hmm. and it hits something in the water. Uh, the hull is breached. And then it seems very clear that the sort of interior is going to collapse at any moment. And everybody's going to die. It's just a matter of time, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing anybody can do, and the all the other crewmen start to flee. And Jim doesn't feel like that's right. He shouldn't do that. There's a whole crew on board. He avoids it, um, but then the ship doesn't sink. It just keeps sort of on for. Minute after minute after minute. And they know any like the slightest breeze is gonna knock that thing down. It's it's going to fall when it uh, it's you know, when it when it sinks, it's just gonna sink like a stone and everybody's gonna be dead. But he has to stand there watching them try and get one of the life rafts aboard. There aren't enough life rafts for everybody. Um, they're trying to get this boat aboard. They're, like, comically bad at it. He describes it as this burlesque where he's just watching sort of torturous because they're doing the thing that theoretically, if he had enough time, could save his life, but he he loathes them. They have no interest in him. And then the last moment, um, one of the guys who was supposed to go on the boat has, like, a stroke or a heart attack and dies. And then Jim looks down and jumps. And so escapes on the boat, and then the Patna... Somehow miraculously doesn't sink
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so and this was based on a real incident mm-hmm. um, and so the crew has fled, and the Patna just kind of keeps floating along until uh
0: it's rescued it's right?
1: rescued by like a yeah. French ship, and there's this French guy who uh, officer who goes on board for like the thirty hours that it takes to to tow it thirty hours with no wine, uh, which was a nice touch yeah um, you know this sort of honorable french uh, officer um and when the when they get to shore uh you know the fact that they behaved abominably sort of common knowledge there has to be a trial but all the people most responsible the captain uh, and the others they all leave like they, they escape the the captain <laughs> finds like some extra clothing. The only clothing that he's able to find are like orange and, and green striped pajamas. Um, and they disappear. And then Jim is the only one who actually like stays for the trial to stand up and take his punishment. That's um,
0: right. He has to face the music,
1: right? He has to face the music. A lot of the novel deals with the sort of the, the thing that haunts Marlowe, who's telling the story, who's clearly obsessed by the story is that this sort of idea of like you think you know who you are right and then there are things that can happen that can crush that that are still um it's not that jim was right to jump right um and it's not that the sort of seamen who convene were wrong to punish jim right it seems to me that the perspective of the novel or the perspective of Marlowe, seems to be there's a sort of code that you have to uphold that code is a kind of creation of human beings. It's valuable, it's meaningful, but it is sort of in some ways false or not adequate to, um, all of reality, which is always going to be more chaotic, um, than any kind of, system that you can put on top of it and yet nevertheless you're going to need to live your life by some sort of uh code or meaning of purpose
0: it strikes me that one of the persistent themes of the novel is this idea that a catastrophe some some kind of unexpected catastrophe is like a truth revealing thing and in particular what a catastrophe does is reveal your character to yourself and others and in Jim's case, you know, he's he's this romantic, he, he sort of reads these adventure stories about the sea as a kid. And he's like, oh, I'm going to go out there and prove my stuff. And then when it comes time um, to do that, he's not virile and manly and brave. Um, he's a coward who abandons, but he abandons basically a bunch of, pilgrims seeking salvation (laughs) um and and it's this i i mean you know it's a it's a it's a kind of crisis but then he's also the one that is left with the weight of the responsibility of this failure and i think that like somehow this has to be part of the the broader theme of like you know, what it takes really to get at the truth. Sometimes it takes a lot of external pressure and sometimes the truth is actually like pretty unpleasant. You think that you want to do this like manly stuff, but it turns out (laughs) actually actually, you don't. Or you think it's going to be this way because you read about it and it seems right. so awesome. Somehow it reminds me of Madame Bovary is sort of like, she thinks, like she reads all these stories, you know, mm-hmm. as a young girl, like, I think that like romantic love is going to be this way. Right. And then it's, wow, it's really not. There's something about catastrophe here. That's really important to Conrad. Um, and, and part of it is that you never know when a catastrophe is coming. Right. Right. And you never really know um, who you are until like, you can have all kinds of, you can have a fantastic imagination about what you would do in a catastrophe and what it would be like, but you don't actually know until the catastrophe hits. And Mm -hmm. then sometimes it's like really surprising.
1: The novel doesn't seem to, it doesn't want to, it doesn't want to hang Jim by how he behaves in that moment. Right. Because, um you you talked about this notion of like the catastrophe, and then you sort of see you know what stuff we're made of, right and yet Marlowe the reason I think that Marlowe is terrified by Jim or not is is so drawn to him is because it, it because he's one of us, right because he doesn't necessarily think. This has revealed Jim's character so much as this is a sort of thing that any of us can fall into, right? We can we can be briarly, right? And have the perfect life and succeed in every test that is thrown before us, and yet you never get to master your fate. So there's a there's a kind of later in the novel, so after this the first part of the novel, Jim <clears throat> goes on. Uh, to this other, this kind of floats through um, different port towns, right? Uh, and then eventually Marlowe helps him find a job in this very sort of remote area where he is able to sort of achieve a degree of respect and he behaves bravely and um, and almost sort of masters his fate and there's this sort of continual refrain towards the latter part of the book about how you know marlowe thought that he had indeed mastered his fate right that that um that sort of fate was you know this sort of belief that maybe if you have the right character the character could be destiny if your character is good enough you could actually sort of avert catastrophe or not necessarily even catastrophe but avert shame Right. Mm. And that is ultimately not up to Jim.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm for maybe obvious reason, I'm always thinking of Aristotle. And uh so so Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics in Book Eight, he's it's in a discussion of friendship. And of course, all of the Nicomachean ethics is about what it takes to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. Like, that's the goal. He's like, well, you know, actually, you might have all that it takes, and it's just all going to go to hell. And yeah. his example is King Priam. So he's like, you know, Priam was a was a, was a great man, and he had everything that you could want, and look what happened to him. And that's just something that can happen. So that... Is sort of Aristotle signaling that there's a bit of luck here. I don't know how Aristotle feels about it, but in his discussion, there's no hint that, like, King Priam went down in shame. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe he does think that. I mean, it's certainly a, a very plausible reading that, that he would have died, you know, feeling deeply ashamed. This is like the stuff of Greek tragedy, right? It's not really up to us in the end, and it might go to hell and, you know... That's just the way it is for the human. I don't know. Maybe Lord Jim is it tragic? Is this a tragic novel? <laughs> um,
1: no it doesn't. It doesn't feel that way to me. It, uh, though the narrator insists that sort of Jim succeeded at the end. Um, in a way, Jim is. It's an interesting character to pace a novel around because i think conrad's less interested in jim at the end of the day than with sort of what jim's story reveals right that
0: what does jim's story reveal
1: <laughs> uh different things to everybody who encounters him right so you know some people look at jim uh and say you know there's there's one guys like you got to see a thing as it is and that means like Rob, cheat, steal, like life is chaos. Um, There's, uh, you know, uh, Marlowe, who is sort of, I think, captivated and terrified by Jim's story. There's Stein. Maybe we should talk about Stein for a little bit because he's fascinating.
0: Who's Stein?
1: So Stein is this character in the middle of the novel. Uh, So Jim has been like sort of working as like a, Selling ships that come in, he goes and meets them and sort of shells, sells them goods on behalf of of uh, whatever merchant is is, is uh, hiring him at the time. And he'll stay in a town until people realize who he is and what his story was, and then he'll flee again. And so Marlowe goes to Stein, who's been in the region for a long time, is this sort of like <sighs> trader who... Has a kind of philosophical bent and is really into butterflies, um, and has you know been in really dramatic and dangerous situations, and has a you know sort of uh, different perspective on life. And uh, asks him for help, and Marlowe explains Jim's story to Stein, and Stein has uh, sympathy for Jim, uh, and, and that's probably I think probably the most famous part of the novel is um where uh he's talking to stein about this and and stein says yeah very funny this terrible thing is a man that is born falls into a dream like a man who falls into the sea if he tries to climb out into the air as an experienced people endeavor to do he drowns no i tell you the way is to the destructive element submit yourself and with the exertions of your hands and feet in the water make the deep deep sea keep you up so if you ask me how to be, and yet it is true, it is true in the destructive element immerse. Um, as we were talking to the Tom Slay, the poet, a friend of mine, his mother, uh, when she taught uh, high school students, Lord Jim, at the beginning of the uh, of the school year, she would say, you know, why am I, why are you taking this class? Is it, so you can read literature better? No, it's so that you can know, as Joseph Conrad said, That in the destructive element, you must immerse.
0: What does that really mean?
1: What does that mean? Um, (laughs) I think it means that there must be a degree of embrace of that chaos and acceptance of it. um, And an acceptance of your limitations, right? That if you... If you try and live, there's a certain degree of contempt that the novel shows for people who have lived their lives safely and who think that they can make strong moral judgments, that they can sit in judgment of people like Jim or Marlowe or Stein without ever having experienced these sorts of things.
0: There's a wonderful line in the beginning. This is like chapter one. So I'll just read this because this made me like laugh out loud. So this is just like introducing Jim. And at this point, it's kind of like just a a stereotypical omniscient narrator, right? Like, let me just tell you about this guy, Jim. So originally he came from a parsonage. Many commanders of fine merchant ships came from these abodes of piety and peace. Jim's father possessed such certain knowledge of the unknowable as made for the righteousness of people in cottages without disturbing the ease of mind of those whom an unerring providence enables to live in mansions. <laughs> just right away, you're like, ooh, he's not really. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> he's th- not messing around here. Th-
1: th- later in the book, he just straight up insults the reader. I mean, technically, it's like Marlowe insulting the people who are listening to yeah. the story. But one of the chapters ends with him like, expressing hesitance about telling the rest of jim's story and then he explains the reason he goes frankly it is not my words that i mistrust but your minds i could be eloquent were i not afraid you fellows had starved your imaginations to feed your bodies i do not mean to be offensive it is respectable to have no illusions and safe and profitable and dull
0: right Yeah, I think this was like the fundamental appeal to me, like as a teenager with Conrad. It was just like, this man has no patience for bullshit. (laughs) He does have this kind of animosity towards um, the comfortable, the bourgeois, you know, safe bourgeois religion, right? Where providence allows you to live in a mansion.
1: Um, Kind of comfortable ideology of almost any kind, honestly, right? Um, I mean, I love the, 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 there's a bit in the novel early on where he's talking about Jim, um, uh, and, and, one of the things he likes about them is he's like, um, you know, I liked his appearance. I knew his appearance. He came from the right place. He was one of us. Right. And so you can tell, uh, you know, he stood for all the parents of of his kind for men and women, by no means clever or amusing, but whose very existence is based upon honest faith and upon instinct of courage. I don't mean military courage or civil courage or any special kind of courage. I just mean that inborn ability to look temptation straight in the face, a readiness unintellectual enough goodness knows, but without pose. And then he says, "An um, unthinking and blessed stiffness before the outward and inward terrors, before the might of nature, the, seduction, the seductive corruption of men backed by a faith, invulnerable to the strength of facts, to the contagion of example, to the solicitation of ideas. Hang ideas. They are tramps, vagabonds, knocking at the back door of your mind, each taking a little of your substance, each carrying away some crumb of that belief and a few simple notions you must cling to if you want to live decency, decently and would like to die easy.
0: Yeah, so what's really going on there? I had I have that passage, marked, <laughs> and I was kind of like, you know, I don't really know what's <laughs> going on here. So you, you tell me.
1: So I think that... Um, Throughout, he has a sort of, he has a distrust of the kind of comfortable bourgeois religion that's represented by Jim's father, right? Who he can never return to, right? Because Jim has shamed himself. Mm-hmm. He has a respect for the the code, I guess, of, yeah, the code of the sailors. Like, he, he, he respects it, but he understands it's sort of false, right? It's it's never it's a kind of broad thing that is never actually going to capture the irreducible human complexity of a human being in a specific embodied situation. Right. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, Robert Penn Warren essay in the c review on Nostromo where Warren, uh, talking about Conrad wrote, the last wisdom is for man to realize that though his values are illusions, the illusion is necessary. Is infinitely precious, is the work of his human achievement, and is in the end his only truth, right? So, and that is, um, and so most people can sort of construct an ideological system that justifies them, right? Or that sort of gives them a place in the world or lets them think they know who they are in the way that Briarly thinks that they know who they are. And then every once in a while, and catastrophe can do this, right? You come upon extremely specific pressurized situations where those ideological systems that you construct to help you navigate through the world that you need to construct, to help you navigate through the world don't work. And what you're left with is human choices. Um,
0: what would it mean for them to work? What would, what are the success conditions? (sighs) the success i mean yeah yeah, because i mean like if you say values are an illusion but it's your only but they're also your only truth it's like well that just is saying there is no truth because your only truth is an illusion um and i mean do you think that's really what conrad is getting at
1: but that's what he contrasts in that first bit with the sort of unintellectual sort of natural instincts that he he admires in Jim. So towards the end of the novel he gives you a kind of like um false double of Jim in Brown. Hmm. Um so
0: Brown is a pirate.
1: Yeah. Right? Yes he is. yes so Brown has fled um, he's afraid of prison, uh, stolen a ship and he ends up in Pechewan which is where Jim has kind of established himself where he's uh, with the you know with the local girl um, where he's got the friendship of like this one chief's son um, he has respect. And Brown uh, enters this place uh, and sort of gets into an armed standoff with the locals and with Jim. And Brown uh, kind of torments Jim by trying to argue his case in terms that Jim, that would sort of like be perfectly calibrated to appeal to Jim. Uh, so At one point, he's trying to explain how he ended up in this spot. Uh, And Brown says, I've lived, and so do you, Though you talk as if you were one of those people that should have wings so as to go about without touching the dirty earth. Well, it is dirty. I haven't got any wings. I'm here because I was afraid once in my life, right? Which is, of course, exactly the same reason the gym is. Mm -hmm. And yet, um, and Brown even has a sort of um, behaves on principle, right? um, uh, sort of perverse, uh, evil principles. Um,
0: so he has a pirate's code.
1: Yeah, he has a pirate's code and a, and a, and a, and a, pride, um, in his, in his ethic. Um, and yet you're clearly meant to be revolted by Brown and, and you're meant to admire Jim. Um, and I think for Conrad, you know, words and i think this is related to the style of narration i think the reason that he's constantly sort of it's not just that Marlowe is telling us a story but Marlowe will tell us a story about what brierly told him or about what brown told him or about what this french captain told him or at one point there's a very interesting bit later in the novel where he narrates the end of jim's life to one of the people who had listened to the story earlier and it's clearly like a um, sort of racist Englishman believer in kind of the white man's burden who thinks that Jim, by shacking up with a native, um, has betrayed sort of civilization, right? Um, uh,
0: well, because yeah. he falls in love yes. with a, she's like half Malay. Mm-hmm. What's her? She's like half cool. native. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, and then you get that guy's words. And so he's constantly showing us these sort of different ways, um, and different codes that the people are using to make sense of their reality. Um, and, uh, and then instead, um, and, and, and except for Jim himself, who, in some ways he's just sort of simple. He wants to be the romantic hero that he always thought he was, and yet he always bears this sort of secret shame where he knows uh, in his heart that he can't be.
0: Can we talk about the absurd? So you sent me this amazing little essay by a woman named Daphne Erdenost Vulcan. It's hard to describe this essay. I mean, I guess ostensibly it's an essay on Bakhtin. But- More generally, and for our purposes, it's an essay on this concept of a, of a narrative self, Mm -hmm. sort of like a philosophical account of the self. Her main question is, does narrative identity liberate or imprison human subjectivity? Mm -hmm. Is individual agency enabled or suppressed by a narrative conception of subjectivity? To what extent can we author ourselves? you know, one of the questions here is a question of self-knowledge. So to what extent is any autobiography like a reliable thing? Can anyone really narrate their own lives on their own? Or do we kind of always necessarily have to rely on others to understand ourselves? And she seems to.
1: So this is, I mean, this is like Mm -hmm. Augustine, you know, the, the, the notion where when you really start to inspect what what memory and time are right mm-hmm. that it becomes very clear that to be an intelligent thinking human soul in time is to be unfinished in some way right
0: mm-hmm.
1: that um yeah
0: you're a wayfarer yeah
1: um and that that's not you're on the way just a matter of of sort of like a a religious thought Right. But also one that, that sort of yields itself. If you really deeply analyze um, uh, the structure, the structure thing, you know, Rome Williams has a nice uh, bit on Augustine where he talks about how like, you know, people who complain about the unity of Augustine's confessions is a very weird book.
0: It's hilarious. (laughs) Someone once described Augustine's confessions this way, and it was perfect. I think this is someone on Twitter, but it's like, Oh, you know, for like ten chapters, it's like, "Oh God, why am I so terrible? What's yeah. wrong with me? Like, oh, what about time? That's really yeah. weird right. Yeah. <laughs> What's up with time? It's a hard a hard book to figure out for yeah. sure but but it's also obviously in some sense an an autobiography. Maybe it's the first autobiography, depending on who you ask. but um
1: the, 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 this is this is the bit from from uh, Williams. Those who have found the unity of the whole work of Lucif have missed the fact that he is not recording an edifying and coherent life, but performing two different tasks. As he says in Book 10, he's exposing his continuing confusions and irresolutions irreli- resolutions as an encouragement to others. You don't have to have made a good story for life in order to be a faithful Christian. And he is praying. Purely formally, the whole of the Confessions is a prayer. To work out who I am, I need to be speaking to and listening to God. Yeah. And in the um definitely Vulcan essay bakteen is looking at this and sort of the authorial consciousness that that, that sort of very uh, omniscient um uh, uh confident authorial presence um uh sort of, of which i was speaking before that uh, she has a word for it: the transgredient the hero of the work is just con- kind of contained in the authorial vision. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what Bakhtin was looking at Dostoevsky and um, Dostoevsky has these characters who, who sort of speak for themselves, right. Mm-hmm. And seem to be speaking against the author, in fact. Um, and that, um, you know, that sort of, you uh, ability of, of Dostoevsky to have this sort of, um, authority that he sees in a certain way, right? Where he's not trying to put this sort of uniform construction that will contain his characters and their ideologies within one overarching, uh, sort of framework that will kind of comfortably interpret everything for the reader. That, uh, ultimately Bakhtin decided was sort of Dostoevsky's sort of Copernican revolution in narrative and that move is is similar to what Conrad does when he pivots to having Marlowe tell the story and then tell the story of other people telling the story where you don't necessarily have a last word but rather everything is put into dialogue with everything else
0: right well sort of, sort of what I took away one of the things I took away from the essay and just correct me if I'm wrong is that Bakhtin has this vision of narrative identity as being intersubjective. Like it's so. so there's a, there's a conceptual or a logical priority given to the intersubjective over the subjective. So, so that like your subjectivity is constructed through intersubjective exchange or transaction or dialogue. Is that right? Yeah. I hadn't thought about it as applied to literature right i was reading lord jim and i'm not in the best frame of mind and i'm like annoyed i'm like uh it's sort of like the first time i read um the brothers karamazov mm-hmm. and and you know i'm like oh it's like an important book but like why is it so boring <laughs> and like why why does everybody have like five names just have a damn name just stick to your name i'm confused and so i do think it's a novel that you know, is very demanding. It requires a lot of patience. Like, you really got to pay attention, which, I mean, obviously, if you're a careful reader of fiction, you got to pay attention. If that's the point, right? I mean, that's that's important. That's deep. If the point is just that, look, in order to understand, like, who this guy is and what actually happened and what we're supposed to think about it, you actually have to have a bunch of different perspectives. But, I mean, but look, is that the point? she doesn't take a position, certainly not about this novel. I mean, no. it's just all sort of like, yeah. at, a, at a very general philosophical abstract level, but just specifically when applied to Lord Jem, I mean, is that what's going on?
1: And, and this novel is, is the eye that, sorry, the essay is the eye that tells itself by Daphna Erdenas Vulcan. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that is like one of the things that, it's not just that you sort of get to the truth through differing perspectives in that way, but that sort of—that's um, a large part of what makes up human beings, right? Habit, habit, necessity. Do you see the eyes of others is something that the the French officer who behaves honorably um, tells him that that's, um, and then, you know, the sort of uh, nader for Jim. Is not actually the trial necessarily so much as when he's on the boat after having jumped, and it's just him and these other um sort of terrible seamen, um mm-hmm. alone. Uh he says, trust a boat on the high seas to bring out the irrational that lurks at the bottom of every thought, sentiment, sensation, emotion, right? I think part of what is terrible for Marlowe um about this story is that it, it it suggests to him that what jim is or what jim's life you know what to make of jim's life is not entirely up to jim right
0: i mean sometimes you hear like these like platitudes like oh you know you you write your own story and i'm like no you don't right. you don't i mean you don't um you absolutely do not that's not to deny your your beautiful wonderful freedom you are free but you're free within like a lot of stuff that wasn't up to you including your nature like you didn't choose to be human which actually is incredibly confining and weird and in some ways kind of terrible like <laughs> it's 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 wonderful terrible but like, you know, if we're up to me, I'd be like, Psh, I want to be an angel. Yeah. <laughs> really, you know, like the human, Jeez, It's not totally up to you. I, I really like the way she put it at one point, sort of like in a more, she says, we are, to put it briefly, authored, configured by an internalized other in much the same way as a hero is authored by the writer of fictional narratives. That being a way of describing like Bakhtin's insight. And I like that. I think there's... Something deep and important there. One of the things that comes out in the essay is this, you know, the problem of self-knowledge in terms of my subjective first person experience, right? I'm thinking of myself as subject, but I can also sometimes see myself as an object. And it's a bit uncanny actually, whenever I kind of objectify myself. So like Walker Percy talks about this a lot it's a, it's a theme in his fiction, but he talks about it in his more philosophical essays, right where he's like this uncanny experience of seeing yourself as an object when you like actually see yourself as other people see you. And he's like, it's really actually like pretty horrible and horrifying and um, you're like, oh, do I do I really sound that way? Did I really look that way? It's this kind of like negotiation. Right, between subject and object and right. like trying to get these two perspectives to come together. And this is my way of like getting back around to the idea of the absurd. Right. So like one of the things that you wrote to me in an email was that you you think that Conrad's like conception of the absurd is close to that of well, closer to that of Thomas Nagel's yeah. rather than Camus. Nagel's conception of the absurd right, is, is is precisely about the gap between yeah. the subjective and the objectives. So, like, the absurd is basically this. Subjectively speaking, it seems like what happens to me is, like, super important, right? Right? Because it's me. We care. It seems like we it really care. matters. Like, I really care. Mm-hmm. But then from an objective perspective, it's so obviously meaningless, right? Get, I mean, you're just like a peon, a grain of sand on the beach, a drop of water in the vast <laughs> ocean, like... You know it doesn't matter so there's like this huge gap and that's the sense in which your life is absurd
1: there's a bit from his essay which is great each of us lives his own life lives with himself 24 hours a day what else is he supposed to do live someone else's life yet humans have the special capacity to step back and survey themselves and the lives to which they are committed with that detached amazement which comes from watching an ant struggle up a heap of sand Without developing yeah. the illusion that they are able to escape from their highly specific and idiosyncratic position, they can view it subspecie aeternetnidus, eter- uh, <clears throat> and the view is at once sobering and comical. And that, to me, is why, you know, you know, we talked a little bit about Camus, and I love Camus. Nagel, in this very sort of, um, you, you can sort of see him having a little twinkle in the eye, just like puncturing Camus' bubble. Um You know, sort of, and he argues that for Camus, the problem is that the world is, um, you know, sort of is absurd, right? That the world does not fit itself to human desires. Uh, There's a great passage in the plague about how um, it's the humanists who die first in a plague. Mm -hmm. um, Because Mm -hmm. a plague is not something, you know, within the sort of human frame of mind, uh, humanist frame of mind uh and so they they don't take the sufficient precautions because it doesn't work inside their worldview. Um, and uh, so Camus on not on uniformly good brand, good grounds, rejects suicide, the other solutions he regards as escapist. What he recommends is defiance or scorn. We can salvage our dignity, he appears to believe by shaking a fist at the world, which is deaf to our pleas and continuing to live in spite of it. This will not make our lives unabsurd, but it will lend them a certain nobility. And then goes, this seems to me romantic and slightly self-pitying. <laughs> Our absurdity warrants neither that much distress, distress nor that much defiance. Uh It's the
0: rebel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just have – so, yeah. So for for Camus, the gap is between the way you are constructed Mm -hmm. as a human being. So you're a rational thing. You want things to make sense, and you're confronted with a world that is simply unintelligible. Right. Right? I mean, who is is Camus' hero? It's Sisyphus, right? right? I mean, Sisyphus is engaged in this eternal – Meaningless, completely meaningless activity, but he's, you know, what's the famous line? We must imagine Sisyphus happy. Like, and of course, Sisyphus was this um, guy who was um, punished by the gods to roll a rock, a really big rock, (laughs) up a really big hill. And then once he gets to the top, it's just going to go back down and he just has to do it over and over again for eternity. Um, That seems Really unattractive to a human being. Why? Because humans want to engage in activities that are meaningful, that seem like they have a point or a purpose. And this is like the most purposeless. Unfulfilling. There's no consummating moment in this activity. There's no telos that's ever reached. You're just doing this over and over again. You know, it's like raking the leaves. They're just going to come back. It's terrible. So that's the gap. It's a different gap.
1: Even if the world made sense, it still are still there would be that sense of absurdity.
0: Right. You might actually have, like, from your perspective, a totally meaningful life. Like maybe you I don't know, you ended apartheid or something. It seems like you're important. But you didn't. Because like objectively speaking, who cares? Right. The Nick picture is less serious. I mean, you it, know, Camus is sort of it's, sometimes comically serious, yes. but it's like really super serious. Yes.
1: It's sobering and comical at the same time. Yeah.
0: And and like whereas for Camus, it's like just kind of funny. Conrad kind of, is
1: actually really funny. Right. And really yeah. funny in the dark points. I mean, the, the, the episode of the, of the Patna is utterly ridiculous. Right. Um, right. The Characters are ridiculous. Um, <laughs> the, the, um, you know, the, the drunken, um, you know, first mate who, uh, you know, the doctor examines him, and he's like, a tremendous, one of the most incredible specimens I've ever seen, you know, like, purely from a medical standpoint, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, right. um, you know, the, the, the captain, his striped pajamas, and you know, the description of the of them trying to get off the boat is, you know, it's like a, a Three Stooges routine, right? Right. And it's also the great tragedy of, of Jim's life, and utterly harrowing to Marlowe.
0: I mean, does Conrad think that the human condition is absurd and the best thing we can do is laugh, laugh it off? I don't, I mean, you definitely, you don't, you don't get that sense, like, say at the end of Heart of Darkness.
1: No, no, no. He doesn't, he doesn't think just because it's comical doesn't mean you laugh it off, right? Like you still need to struggle, right? You need to immerse yourself in the destructive element. You need to go out there. You need to challenge yourself. You need to, um, immerse yourself in the destructive element while never once believing that you can actually master it. Right. That sort of, if you think like Briarly, you've mastered your fate, you're living in, in delusion. Um, and yet also, you know, thinking that it's important, not succumbing to the sort of the, the Browns of the world or Chester's who think that, um, the essential absurdity or of the world or the kind of, the ways that sociological conditions can can propel us to dishonorable action or somehow justify you know justify yourself, um, you know you need to struggle, you need to try and behave honorably, you need to, um, and yet you should be attuned to the comedy of it, I think, and I think understanding the comedy of it and having us enough detachment um, that you can appreciate it will help you move forward.
0: What does it mean to move forward? What does it mean to like, let me just ask you this. What does it mean for Conrad to like come to self-knowledge? Cause like, you know, I can say pretty confidently for someone like Augustine to come to self-knowledge is to see that, you're a sinner to see that you need God's grace to Mm -hmm. see that everything in this life is just a a foretaste of of something much better, blah, 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 Right. Um, you're a needy dependent thing, but like ultimately your perfection consists in love of God. What is, what What is is that discussion
1: with Monica? Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, what does it really mean for Conrad? Like what, what are you going to come to see if you come into self-knowledge as a human being? It's not that you're a wayfarer or a pilgrim on his way to salvation. I think that would be like too comfortable for him.
1: It would be. It's, yeah. it's,
0: it's, it's a happy ending in a way.
1: Yeah. So there's a bit where he, he argues that, um, sort of self <laughs> there's, Like we always evade self, I mean, he's continually arguing that we evade self-knowledge, right?
0: We absolutely evade self-knowledge.
1: And there's a wonderful bit where he says, um, uh, talking about Jim's story, it had the power to drive me out of my conception of existence. Out of that shelter each of us makes for himself to creep under in moments of danger as a tortoise withdraws within its shell. Uh, For a moment.
0: Oh yeah, that's a a great passage. That's like, that's maybe my favorite one. (laughs)
1: For a moment I had a view of a world that seemed to wear a vast and dismal aspect of disorder while, in truth, thanks to our unwearied efforts, it is as sunny an arrangement of small conveniences as the mind of man can conceive, but still it was only a moment. I went back into my shell directly. One must, don't you know? Though I seemed to have lost all my words in the chaos of dark thoughts I had contemplated for a second or two beyond the pale, these came back too, very soon. For words also belong to the sheltering conception of light and order, which is our refuge. Conrad has, um, you know, you know, we're never at rest until we find rest in God. Um, I think the most that you can get in Conrad is you sort of live your life according to that conception that you know is sort of false or insufficient in some way. You, you try and hold fast towards those principles that guide you a little closer to truth or beauty or, um, whatever it is. It's, you know, cause he's not a nihilist. He believes that the choices that these people make matter. Right. Um, but he thinks that it is ultimately too mysterious, too strange. Um, And ultimately too frightening for us to really hold on to it for any, for any length of time. Um, And in that passage, he suggests that it's, you know, ultimately beyond language.
0: I think Conrad has a really clear sense of good and evil. Yeah. I think that he has a sense of the profound extent to which human beings can be evil I think he also has a sense of the transcendent, Mm -hmm. even though it's not, it's not God. Right. Um,
1: We had approached near to absolute truth, which like beauty itself floats, elusive, obscure, half submerged in the silent, still waters of mystery.
0: Yeah. Right. So their transcendent tracks the old, notion of the transcendentals, yeah. right? Truth, beauty, goodness, and things that transcend our subjective perspective, things that we strive imperfectly to get, things that are hard for us to get, things that we're meant in some sense to attain by our nature, things that are real, right? They're not illusions. Right. <laughs> Whereas Heart of Darkness is about how hard it is to hold on to the good Lord Jim strikes me as more about how hard it is to, to get at the truth. Right. I mean, it's, it's obscure to us. It's shrouded. It's difficult. Our best efforts sometimes fail. It's confusing. Like we don't really know. And somehow I was thinking like all of that was like baked into like the weird, complicated narrative structure. And, and also kind of the weird ending. (laughs) I mean, it has kind of a weird ending, but you know, it's, it's also there in Heart of Darkness. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff about truth in that, in that book too. I mean, because, you know, the end of the story is, is like a lie. Yeah. It ends with a lie. His
1: last word were your name.
0: Yeah. Which is crazy. The thing that really attracts me to Conrad, I think his sense of like the limits of right. human beings. Right. Right. I mean, he's like so aware of how limited we are. Um, and, and, and yet like we have to, we have to strive for something that like we're not really set up to get, but like you gotta, you gotta try.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And you sort of create systems for understanding the world, right. As you move through, as you move through it. That are necessary, but nevertheless, don't actually sort of exhaust the the, the mystery at the heart of existence. And when we try to grapple with another man's intimate need that we perceive how incomprehensible wavering and mystery are the beings that share with us the sight of the stars and the warmth of the sun. It is as if loneliness were a hard and absolute condition of existence. The envelope of flesh and blood on which our eyes are fixed melts before the outstretched hand and there remains only the capricious, inconsolable and elusive spirit that no eye can follow. No hand can grasp.
0: Yeah. It's nice. It is nice. So let me ask you, uh, we're going to have to like end this soon because it's, uh, we've been talking a little while. So what do you think? So it seems like, um, we're all kind of in this for the long haul. Um, it's a little terrifying, actually, to think about how long I'm going to be stuck in my house. <laughs> um, I can't, I, can't I, I seriously, I can't think about it too much. I basically, the way that I'm coping is that I take my life in very discreet, small chunks. Two days at a time. That's, that's the about, way to do it. That's as best as I can do. What do you recommend for quarantine reading? <laughs> Besides, obviously, Lord Jim.
1: Well... There's the Decameron. <laughs> um, Why
0: should we read that? Why is that a good plague reading?
1: Well, it's set during a plague. That's
0: Picacho. Yeah. In case people don't know.
1: Um, and who doesn't like body tales during a plague? Yeah. Uh, the magic mountain.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Thomas Mann. Give us like a wild card one. Yeah. An unexpected one. I'll give one. I think people should read Walker Percy's Love in the Ruins. It's crazy. And it's really long and it's complicated. And it's, it's, it's a little bit apocalyptic.
1: Lawrence Joseph, um, who is a wonderful poet, just came out with a book of poems, selected poems, A Certain Clarity. And, um, I think poetry, especially if you are really, really busy, (laughs)
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh,
1: it's it's good to pick up a book of poems because you can always read yeah. a poem here and there.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I agree with that. That's very sound advice. Yeah, get off Twitter and read poetry. I need to take my own advice,
1: Frank Bedard. Actually, if you like, um, if you like Conrad, um, I would. He's an amazing poet, and and actually, he has a poem where he talks about Augustine. Um, I think it's either golden state or confession. I forget which one, mm. um, uh, where you have somebody who has, in a way like Conrad, I think a sense is attuned to something that you often see in a lot of religious writers, which is a sense of those limitations, a sense of those gaps, a sense of, of, of transcendence and also the sort of, um, uh, th- failures of human beings, a sense of our physical nature and, and, and the constraints of that, the constraints of society, there's, um, just a, uh, really wonderful, wonderful poet. Um, I would recommend Frank Bedard and, uh, Lawrence Joseph.
0: Awesome. Well, this was fun.
1: This is great. Thank you so much. Yeah. I, uh, no,
0: thank you. It is a
1: thrill. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Thank you so much. for.
0: Oh, likewise. Likewise. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes, and you can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at EudaimoniaPod, and we're also on Facebook at Sacred and Profane Love. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, and I hope you do, then you definitely need to leave us a five-star review on iTunes, not four stars, not three stars, but five stars. And be sure to let your friends know to check us out as well. Our next episode will feature Professor David McPherson of Creighton University, and he and I will be discussing Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Until then, stay home and keep reading.